Seekers, this is Abby. On today's podcast, we are jumping into week three of the Excellent Wife series. Today is titled, A Wife's Understanding of Sin, God's Provision. If you would, grab your Bibles, a cup of coffee, and let's jump right in. Welcome back, everybody. So glad that you're joining me today, as always. We're going to continue on in our book titled The Excellent Wife, written by Martha Peace. I hope that you have taken the time to listen to the last two weeks worth of podcasts because this week we're going to dive in into a wife's understanding of sin and God's provision. I read through this chapter several times. I also have my little study guide with the questions that I answered about a year ago, and I'm going to have time to go through that today as well. So I want to encourage you to have a Bible on hand, and if not even that, to take the time to write down the verses that we're talking about today. That way, if you have the Bible app downloaded on your phone, or if you have a Bible that you utilize at your house, that you would take the time to look up these verses as the week goes on so that you can gain a greater understanding of what they are telling us. So thank you for joining me, and I do hope that you will walk away with a greater understanding of who we are before Christ, but who we are in Christ, and how great God's grace and love truly are in that he sent his only son into the world to die for us, and that all who accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ who repent and believe that you will be saved and that all of your past, present, and future sins are forgiven. I have with me a movie titled The Pilgrim's Progress. This was based off of John Bunyan's book that he wrote back in the 1600s. If you're not familiar with John Bunyan's story, I want to encourage you to take some time to look up his biography. This man loved the Lord and so much so that he was willing to face the persecution for being a follower of Christ. And because he loved the Lord, he obeyed the command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as he did that, he would go and he would share God's word. But during that time period, John Bunyan was thrown into prison for his unwillingness to listen to the authorities that were over him, and he continued to preach the gospel despite that persecution. He was put into prison, and it would be during his time of imprisonment that he would write the wonderful book titled The Pilgrim's Progress. I have the book as well. It was given to me by a friend. It's a little bit harder read because it is written in the 1600s. It's been um, translated a little bit to make it easier for us to read today in the 2000s. But this movie is so wonderful. And there is a part, the main character in the movie, his name is Christian, and he comes in contact with the book. The book being the Bible. They don't come outright and say it because John Bunyan... In his book, he didn't come right out and say it. It was kind of a um, fictional story that he had written for his children while he was behind closed doors. 
but the main character is Davis Christian. He finds this book and the book changes his life and he begins to look for the celestial city and he begins to lose his grip on the world around him, that which included even his wife and children. He loved them very much, but he realized that they had to make the decision to seek the celestial city and to seek the king for themselves. And so he starts on foot, goes about on this journey where he's being led by the good shepherd. There's a beautiful scene where it shows him actually coming to the Lord and he has this giant pack on his back. It looks like a big boulder almost that he's been carrying around. No one can see it except for Christian and he can obviously feel it and it's heavy and it's weighted and it's tiresome and it is a burden. And when he finally has his eyes enlightened to the fact that the king, the good shepherd, laid down his life for him, this pack comes off of him and he receives a new set of garments for the journey that lies ahead. And it's this beautiful picture of what happens when we put our faith in Christ and we are born again believers who have become citizens of heaven. Although we're still on the earth, we're still here and Christian as well as us, we are still in the flesh, but the Bible tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so we see Christian going about as he's making his way towards the celestial city, toward heaven, so to speak. And there's times that he is distracted and there's times that he is misled by the evil one. And there's this beautiful picture where he is taken to a divided road. And one road looks like a very rugged, beat, beaten path, and the other one looks very shiny and catching to the eye. And there is a deceiver who shows up, and he says, oh no, don't go that way. Meaning, don't go down that rugged path. Why would you do that? Go this way. <laughs> and he points Christian on unto this golden path that seems so enticing to the human eye. And as they're walking along, the deceiver convinces Christian that he is there by his own good deeds and he has just really accomplished a lot and he should be proud of himself. And it turns away from what the good shepherd has done to what Christian believes that he has done. And he falls into this snare, this trap, so to speak, and he's taken up and a helper has to come to release Christian to remind him that, yes, you were deceived, but you are a new creation who is on a new path, who is putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and you must continue to go forward. And then one more scene that I want to talk about is where, again, Christian is deceived into thinking that he is getting there by his own good works. And he actually meets another deceiver who convinces him that one of the evangelists that Christian had met along the way, an evangelist is someone who shares the good news of the gospel, someone who loves the Lord Jesus, and God has really given them the gift to go out and to share the gospel with the lost souls. And so the evangelist had encountered 
Christian, and that was where Christian really heard the good news and accepted Christ. And the deceiver convinced Christian that the evangelist was a cuckoo man, so to speak. And Christian fell into that trap of believing it until later on, as he was going on the path, he meets up with the evangelist again. And the evangelist reminds him, you are forgiven. There is nothing that you can do now that will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that today as we talk about a wife's understanding of sin. We're going to discuss four characteristics of sin, and we're also going to talk about our provision through Christ and how to deal with the consequences of former sin, present sin, and the process as we move forward with understanding what God actually wants to do in us as we put to death the deeds of the flesh and we walk in the spirit. So I hope that this is really informative to you. I hope that you will put this into practice. I hope that you will go out and that you will seek to live a life worthy of your calling and that um, you will embrace who you were created to be in Christ. So a couple of verses that we're first going to look at is we're going to look at Genesis 1:27, where it reads, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then Genesis 1:31, where it reads, and God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Now, God has created us in his image. He's created us male and female. And when he created us, it was all very good. This was before the fall. This was before sin entered into the world, before sin would enter into the first man, into the first woman, that being Adam and Eve. And then all humankind has been born of our forefather and foremother, Adam and Eve. And so through them, sin is born. We're all conceived by them. And therefore, we all contain sin. But prior to this, everything was good. And God desires for all things to once again be restored. But we're in this waiting period. This time where this was said in the garden where Adam and Eve were placed. And all was good. We were made in his image, male and female. And now we're in this waiting time where we seek to be in the presence of the Lord again, where we will eat from the tree of eternal life. But until then, we are waiting. I like the saying where it goes now, but not yet. So we have the ability to comprehend and to live in the spirit, to live a new life, to live as redeemed individuals, but not fully, not quite yet are we where we need to be. And so as we think about sin and the fact that we still live in the flesh, we must understand what God calls us to now as believers who are to live by the spirit and not by the flesh. So four specific characteristics of sin. First of all, number one, sin is universal and no one is exempt. Again, sin is universal. So every single human being who is made in the image of God, whether male or female, we all sin. 
We cannot avoid this. This is who we are. And so in Romans 3.23, it reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a reality that we cannot deny. To deny this is to deny God's word. So if we believe that in some way that we are good people, which I once believed that for myself, and I know talking to a lot of people, when you ask them, well, on what basis do you believe you're going to get into heaven? Most people will say, well, I've tried to live a good life. I try to be a good person. So that's got to amount to something. But the truth is, none of us are good. We all fall short. And so the trouble is, is that we tend to compare ourselves to other people. And those people tend to be people who are known as perhaps murderers or drunken people or people who have done drugs. They have done a hideous sin that, again, has put them into locked doors. I'm just using these as a few examples because these are outward sins that have outward consequences, whether it be that you're put into prison, whether it be the result of drinking and driving, you may have um, gotten into a wreck, maybe killed someone. These are things that we can see outwardly. And so oftentimes, as we live in the flesh, we want to try to justify our own good deeds by comparing ourselves to people who appear to be worse off. And the Bible tells us that we are not to do that because we all sin, we all fall short. So perhaps you've never committed those specific acts, but you have committed sin against a holy and righteous God. So we must hear this and we must believe this to receive salvation. Also, I love Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort is an evangelist. He lives out in Los Angeles, and he has a ministry called Living Waters. Some people wouldn't always agree with the way that Ray does ministry and that he approaches people on the streets. Generally, he goes to local college campuses or he goes to boardwalks where it's very busy, lots of people, and he'll just simply ask them, can I have a conversation with you? Sometimes he is carrying his headset where he asks if they mind if they be recorded and so the conversations are recorded and he'll post them onto his YouTube channel where you can watch these again with the person's um, okay to do so and he will take the people through God's commandments the Ten Commandments and he asks them if they think they're a good person and I'd say even more nine probably ten out of ten people <laughs> unless they're Christians and they understand that they fall short of the glory of God, they will start with answering that, yeah, they think that they're good. And so then Ray will take them through the Ten Commandments, simply asking, have you ever told a lie? And all of them will say yes. They'll say, oh, well, I mean, yes, I little white lies, sure. He says, well, that is a sin. That is breaking the commandment of the Lord. And then he'll ask them, have you ever committed adultery? Maybe not necessarily with a physical woman in the flesh, but have you ever lusted after another woman? Or have you ever lusted after another man despite being married? Even if you're not married, to look at another woman who is married, have you done that? And they'll say, well, yeah, who hasn't? 
And he'll continue on asking them, you know, have you ever stolen anything? Well, I mean, and you see these people really wrestle through these questions. And as they come to the realization that they don't measure up, that provides Ray the opportunity, as it does for all of us. This is how we all should really be presenting the gospel message in the simplest form. When we compare ourselves to the law, which we cannot keep. If we acknowledge that we cannot keep the law, then we acknowledge that we have a problem. And if we acknowledge that we do have a problem, then it sets the scenes to present Jesus as the Savior, as the solution to that great problem. And people that embrace Jesus Christ, they are set free if they truly believe that they are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. And if they truly believe that Jesus died for their sins. This is where the gospel really takes heart in God's people as they have their eyes enlightened and they embrace the truth and they become new creations in Christ. But we have to first recognize that no one is exempt. Every single person we encounter is a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. Every single person needs to know the bad news but most importantly, the good news that can set them free. The second characteristic of sin is that, number two, sin may be open and obvious to others. So we just discussed this a little bit, but I'm going to read a passage from the book of Galatians. It's found in chapter 5, and we're reading verses 19 through 21. And it reads, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to read this one, sorry, verse 22 as well, but the fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So number two, sin may be open and obvious to others. So this lists several things that we can physically see with the human eye. Immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, and so on. Now, things that are obvious. You may say, well, I'm a Christian. I am a believer in Christ Jesus. I have been set free from my old life, and I'm walking no longer by the flesh, but I'm walking in the power of the Spirit. Yes, that is true. But at the same time, we're not always going to be walking by the Spirit. We still live in the flesh. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are new creations. But the flesh is still part of who we are for this short time until Jesus' return or we die and we go to be with the Lord. We're in this waiting period. And so I don't want you to be totally discouraged if you are a believer in Christ and you still find yourself struggling with some of these things. One thing that came to mind for me, I just had a beautiful discussion with another 
stay-at-home mom last night. We were talking about our children and how much we love them and we're grateful to be at home, but at times it can be kind of isolating and we find ourselves getting really angry with our kids and we're thinking, how can this be? So outbursts of anger is an attribute of one who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if we get so hung up on this and we think, oh my goodness, I am a failure. Okay, dear child of God, you must understand that God loved you so much that he was willing to come to the earth in the form of human flesh, sinful flesh, although he knew no sin, but yet he laid down his life, becoming sin, so that you would be redeemed, so that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, so that you can spend all of eternity with God, your creator. And so if you find yourself still getting caught up in these specific things that are mentioned here, jealousy, us women, we are so at risk for becoming jealous women. Perhaps we're jealous of women who are working outside of the homes, who are pursuing careers. The Facebook, Instagram world is full of women promoting beautiful things. And we can find ourselves wondering, well, why does my life not look like that? Why do I not sound like her and look like her? And why am I not achieving all these great things that she is? Ladies, if you find yourselves falling into this trap, as I often have and still do, do yourself a favor. Turn off the junk that's keeping you from understanding who you are in Christ. Don't give yourselves opportunities to sin. What came to mind was that it's not the initial thought or desire within us that is sin. We're still going to have these thoughts. We're still going to have these desires at times because that's the flesh and the evil one knows our weaknesses and he's going to target us and he's he does a good job. He is the great deceiver. He is the angel of light. He disguises himself. So it's not the initial thought. It's not the initial desire within us that is sin. But rather it's when we fail to take the thought captive. It's when we fail to lay it down at the feet of Jesus. It's when we toy with it that it breeds into an action. Jesus died in the flesh so that we who are alive in the spirit could therefore put to death the deeds of the flesh. So if you are discouraged today, like I find myself most days, may you press forward with the assurance that these thoughts, they're going to continue to come while we are in the flesh. But if you have the spirit of God, he can and he will help you to not sin despite still being in the flesh for a little while longer. And this is really good news. So while your sin may be open and obvious to others, do not lose heart in believing that you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God because Jesus laid down his life for you. Now, on the flip side, if you are questioning whether you are truly a believer in Christ, have you truly surrendered your life to the one who died for you. I think it would be good to read these passages slowly, intentionally, meditating on them, asking yourself the question, 
do I find that most of my life is actually the list that's laid out for us. Most of my days here under the sun are full of anger, are full of drunkenness, are full of worshiping the things, the created, rather than God the creator. Am I living my life for myself rather than for the one who created me and knows me and loves me and died for me? Are you seeking disputes? Does your life just revolve around drama and gossip? I think you should take the time to really evaluate if there is unrepentant sin in your life. And even deeper than that, if you have truly surrendered your will, laying it down and allowing Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for your sins, meaning his death was sufficient for you. Have you truly accepted that, embraced it, and allowed God's will to be done in your life? The third characteristic of sin is that sin cannot be hidden from God. The lists that we just discussed, most of them are obvious to others. I will say that jealousy and strife and envying specifically, those stick out to me as things that perhaps may not always be evident to people around us, but it will be evident to the people who know us the best because you cannot hide these things. And even if others are not fully aware of things that you're harvesting inside of your hearts, God knows your heart. He knows your intentions. And so Martha has laid out a scripture from the Old Testament. It's found in the book of 1 Samuel 16, 7. And it's this beautiful picture where Samuel, just prior to this, has went to the Lord. The nation of Israel has requested a king. And Samuel realizes that this is going to be disastrous because God is the king. But Israel wants to be like all the other foreign nations who are not chosen by God. And they're requesting that they have an earthly king. And so he's went before God. He has told them the people's requests. And God tells Samuel to give the people what they're asking. But to make sure to warn them about the consequences of this earthly king. And there's a long passage that talks about how the women will be carried off. They're going to be enslaved by this king and it's going to be very disastrous for the nation of Israel but God tells him go ahead there's someone that I have selected and so Samuel goes and he will select the first king which is King Saul Saul is a handsome big strong man who ends up walking not with the Lord. He seeks to build his own kingdom. And so God will tell Samuel that he will appoint another king over the nation of Israel. And so of course Samuel has in his mind this picture of Saul. And as he goes out looking for the man whom God has chosen, we see that there are many sons of the man Jesse. And Jesse's sons are big and strong as were Saul. 
except for there was one specific son who wasn't there who Samuel would ask Jesse about. And his name was David. David was the youngest. He was back looking over the flock. And God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, God knew the heart of David, for he had created David. He loved David. He had chosen David. And it would be David who would be appointed the second king of Israel. But from Samuel's perspective, even Samuel, Samuel who was a man of God, Samuel who was called at a young age, who heard the voice of the Lord and he would respond and walk faithfully with the Lord, not perfectly as we know, but even Samuel was seeking to view things from his human perspective. But God says, don't do that. I don't look at the things outwardly like you humans do. I judge the heart. And the only one who truly knows our hearts is God. I want to encourage you, though, that if you do not have someone who you can openly and honestly confess existing sin to, or that you can discuss current struggles with, not in a way that you are seeking to have a counseling session with this person, although at times those are very necessary and perhaps you have seeked out a counselor and for a season and a time, or I think it's appropriate, but I mean to have an accountability partner, someone that you can go to and you can say, I'm struggling with this. I need you to pray for me. Someone that you trust, someone that is mature in the Lord that you know is going to take the information that you've given to them and they're going to use it only for the glory of God and not for their own personal gain to gossip and to destroy your reputation. But I want to encourage you, find a person and a good place to start if you don't have that person would be if you're attending a local church body who is that church body is scriptural and they are teaching you God's word and you're seeing that you are growing in your relationship with Jesus, maybe you should go to an elder or go to someone on, we have a welcome station where they can direct you to someone who will help put you in the direction of someone who can disciple you, take you under their wing, so to speak, and be praying that God would put someone in your life that would be this person to you. I don't believe that we're supposed to confess all of our sins publicly. There may be things specifically that you can share in more of like a group type setting, but not everybody needs to know all of the areas that you are struggling with. But regardless, know that God knows your heart. He sees things that we cannot see. And then the fourth characteristic of sin is that sin is justly penalized. In Romans 6, 23, it reads, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, the wages of sin is death. We all will face a physical death, meaning there will be a time in human history where our human body will no longer exist. We will take our last breath, our heart will stop beating, and we will be laid into the ground 
or cremated, or sorry, this may be a little bit too visual, our bodies will physically return back to dust. He told Adam, from dust you were formed, and to dust you shall return, and so it shall be with each of us. But don't lose heart, dear Christians. The next part of this verse is so rich. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Despite the reality that we all will face a physical death unless the Jesus, unless Jesus, the Lord and King, returns before that time, the wages of sin is death. And also in Isaiah fifty three eleven it reads, My servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. He will justify. To justify means to be declared righteous, to be declared innocent. And I love the picture where you're standing before a judge. You have just committed a disastrous crime. Perhaps you have physically murdered someone with your bare hands. You have chosen to take up a weapon of some sort and you have killed that person intentionally. And that judge would never look at you and say, well, you can just go free. I am not going to hold you accountable for this. Just go back out. Try not to do it again. No, you're guilty. And a good judge would deem you just that, as our good and perfect God and creator does, because that is who he is. But also God being rich in mercy, because of his great love for which he loved us, he would make a way for us to be declared forgiven, to be declared innocent. So despite the fact that we've committed these hideous crimes against our holy and just God, he sent himself to die for you. And so we're able to walk free not because we're not guilty, because we are, but because of God's finished and complete work on the cross. This is beautiful. Martha goes on to say, all men sin. Their sin may be open and obvious or may be hidden thoughts and motives because God is omniscient. This means that he knows every thought and every deed of man. It's hard to comprehend, but this is who our God is. Because he is holy, he has to punish sin. Fortunately for mankind, God, out of his heart of love and mercy, provided a payment for the penalty of sin. God's provision was the Lord Jesus Christ. Martha goes on to say, Jesus Christ incurred punishment from God for sin as he died in our place on the cross of Calvary. He was our substitute. We deserve death. Instead, Christ was punished for us. The prophet Isaiah expressed it this way. The chastening for our well-being, the punishment we deserved, fell upon him. Isaiah 53.5 Anyone can be forgiven of their sins and justified, declared righteous by God, based on the work of Christ, if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul elaborated on what he meant by believe on the Lord Jesus Christ when he wrote Romans 10.9. There Paul explained, If you, 
confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Perhaps you have been known, you have known about Jesus all of your life. You may be a member of a church and have been baptized. You may be the Sunday school superintendent. But if you have never trusted Jesus Christ, then you only have the outward form of religion. If you like, you may bow your head right now in humble contrition before God. Ask him to have mercy on your soul. Confess your sin and ask God's forgiveness. And in your own words, confess Jesus as the Lord and master of your life. Now Martha ends this passage with saying that if you have never personally trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may take the opportunity to do so. And I know that this is a very intimate time, but I do want to encourage anyone that's listening, if you are unsure, if you are truly saved, if you are unsure, if you've ever truly trusted Christ, would you take some time now to really pause this episode and ask God to search your heart and he will hear you and he will have mercy on you. He will forgive you and you can be made new through Jesus. We should always be believing what God has to say about us and not what the world has to say about us. And as I discussed last week, when I was referencing the speak truth in your heart and other lies that the world tries to throw at us, the world's going to try to tell you that you are enough, that you are a good person, and that you shouldn't be so hard on yourselves. And while this is true in some respects as Christians, as believers who have put their faith in Christ, as we go about um, our sanctification process. This is the process of, beco- of becoming more like Christ. And it won't be perfect. It's actually going to be really messy. It's going to involve surrendering to our will and allowing the Holy Spirit to truly have reign over all aspects of our lives, which is a surrender um, issue as we give up our desires and we allow God's work to be done in us. But we must understand that we were once deceived, just as many are in the world today, in believing that we were enough and that we were good enough and so forth. And so as we encounter people who speak like this, we need to make sure that our hearts are in the right place and that we are overflowing with love and mercy for these people, understanding who we once were before we had the knowledge of God and the grace that has been given to us. And so I ask that you would approach these people with great patience and through prayer, God would provide you with opportunities to speak truth in the lives of others. But may you not be discouraged when you don't see any outward change taking place. May you continue to be faithful and to do what God has called you to do. So let's remember that this was us. The Bible says, and such were some of you. We're going to read the passage found in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. And it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So such were some of you. Terms that you're going to hear frequently as I am doing these podcasts, terms that I think that every Christian needs to understand. Some people will say that doctrine is insignificant. You just need to love God and love people and let all else fall into place. I don't believe that this is a true statement. In some ways, yes, we are to love God and to love people, but we cannot fully love God and love people if we don't first and foremost love God's word because Jesus is the word. He is the way and the truth and the life, and we can't come to the Father, and we surely cannot point other people to the Father if we don't know what his word actually has to say. So understanding certain terms, I think, is going to be very helpful for you as you move forward in your walk with the Lord. So the first word that was mentioned is the word sanctified. And I had talked about this just a little bit ago, as I mentioned the process of sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Jesus. To be sanctified, this is not a once and done experience. This is something that is happening on a daily, often moment by moment encounter as we recognize the deeds of the flesh and we choose to obey the Lord through reading his word and then actually moving forward with what the word's telling us to do. And so we become more like Jesus as we resist the flesh and we walk by the spirit. We talked about this last night at our life group. We were discussing the difference between being indwelt with by the Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you're unfamiliar with these two terms, whenever you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you are a born-again creature in Christ, a born-again creation, I should say, this is the moment of you being justified okay you are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and this is a once and done experience and in that happening you are indwelt with by the Holy Spirit and you have evidence that the Holy Spirit dwells within you because the Spirit bears witness so our consciences have been given to us by God and they're what allow us to reason and to make decisions and our emotions are involved in our consciences as well. But ultimately, it's only by the spirit dwelling within us that we have the ability to first and foremost recognize sin and then have the ability to choose to continue to walk forward with that sin or continue to to resist the sin, to put it to death and to walk in the spirit. So to be indwelt with by the spirit is a once and done event. You cannot have the spirit and then lose the spirit. I know some people, they say that you could lose your salvation. I hold a standpoint that that is not scriptural, that the Bible tells us that we are sealed, we are adopted, and this is a guarantee that we will be with the Lord forever once we have received the spirit, if indeed the spirit lives inside of you. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit, this is a process that's going to occur as we walk through life, as we are sanctified, again, that big word, in Christ Jesus. So to be filled with the Spirit, we cannot always be filled with the Spirit. We are filled as we read God's Word and we actually obey God's Word. But again, we will not and cannot do this absolutely perfectly 
because we still live in the flesh. If we could somehow in some way just live an absolute perfect life, what would have been the point of Christ coming to die for us? What would be the point of having the Holy Spirit? And quite honestly, what would be the point of being on the earth after we are saved if we're just automatically made perfect and we can be in the presence of the Lord right then and there? Now, that's not to say that we can't be, because I believe that we can, if God would so choose. I mean, look at the thief on the cross. He had done nothing outwardly. He had really been unregenerate in every way, aside from the fact that he had placed his trust in Christ. But moments after that, he would face a physical death. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that as we are filled with the Spirit, and we become more like more like Jesus. This is a great process for us as Christians because we see who God is all the more. So if you're someone that was saved at a young age and you have the great privilege of walking on the earth for decades with God, you recognize who you were apart from Christ and yet you see who you are in Christ and you begin to understand so much greater who God is, how beautiful, how how magnificent. I can't, I can't even put it into words because it's hard for us to comprehend just how glorious God is compared to us as the created. And yet God loves us so much and he wants to have a relationship with us that he died for us. And one other thing that we talked about last night, we wanted to be sure that we weren't totally discouraged as Christians as we continue to, you know, fall short of God's glory and we give in to the desires of the flesh at times, even as believers, let us remember that we are truly made new. I talked about this at the beginning, but I really want this to be something that you all walk away with today. God died for you. And we often still find ourselves believing that we have to please God with what we do. But friends, our good deeds are but filthy rags before God. They are but filthy rags. And despite all this, when we come into God's kingdom and we are standing face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, He's not going to say, well, you didn't quite do that good enough. You could have tried a little harder. Remember that time that you made that decision? I just wish that you you would have listened better. No, he's going to embrace us because of the finished work of Christ. He loves us. We are his children. We are adopted. We are chosen. And so may you rest in that today. If you have put your faith in Christ, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Martha goes on in chapter 3 to talk about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 where it reads, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We are to discipline ourselves. And the Greek word for discipline is gymnasio, 
which means to exercise or to train. And so when I think back to my days of running track and playing volleyball and even cheer, cheer in itself, we had to train, but specifically track. I remember the winter months long before track would even get started where we would be outside running, we had to do an intense training period where I went to school, the high school, junior high and grade school was one gigantic cross. So the high school was at one end when you would run all the way down to the opposite end to the south, it was the junior high and then crossing that you had all of the elementary grades. And our track coach would set up different stations that we would have to stop at. And she would have weights, she would have jump ropes, she had areas where we would have to do sit-ups and push-ups, and it was intense. <laughs> and I think, can I go back to high school and have her train me again? So um, four kids, and now we actually have our fifth one on the way, and so my body definitely does not look like it did when I was 18. But uh, back to the point, we did this intense training, and it was hard. And I remember thinking, I was a hurdler, so I ran the 100-meter hurdles, and it was a 100-meter sprint with 10 hurdles that you would jump over. That was my main event. I thought, how does all this have to do with anything when it comes to jumping over these hurdles and running as fast as I can? But lo and behold, practice after practice, putting in the work, training, I built up endurance for the time that I would physically go out and I would get inside of my starting blocks. I'd wait for that gun to go off and I would take off as fast as I could, jumping over those hurdles to the finish line. We need to train our minds in the same way that I would train myself in preparation to run that short little sprint. And here's the thing. The training process is hard because it involved exercising muscles that I rarely used. I would come home and be so sore and the next morning barely be able to walk and it hurt. But then after a few days, that pain would go away and the area that I once had no muscle I found that muscle was being built up. And so it is with our minds. As we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, this is how we are going to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So how I encourage you to do this is I encourage you to be in God's word every day. Let this not be a homework assignment. You need to love the Lord and love his word with a great longing first and foremost go to him in prayer ask him to search your heart before you begin reading his word take delight in it let it not just be as I said an assignment that you have to check off your list of to do's for the day like you do with your house's laundry load and dishes and all the things that come with maintaining a house this is not the same at the same time, not to take away from the fact that we should enjoy God and enjoy his word, 
we need to be intentional about actually being in his word and taking pieces and truly chewing on them. Meaning we have a dog, Maisie. She's outside of my she shed right this moment. She has different toys that she'll sit with all day long and she just chews on it. And it seems that she's getting nowhere with it, but she enjoys it and it's beneficial to her teeth, I guess. (laughs) Again, beside the point. But as we chew on God's word all day, or I I love the um, little phrase of a stone in your shoe. You walk around and there's a little pebble in your shoe all day and you can't help but think about it and how it's there. And well, you could take it out, but you can't. It's just there and you have to deal with it. Let God's word do the same where it's there and you're aware and you're reflecting on what it means what was the meaning of it in the time period that it was taking place and how does God want to use it to transform your life now as his child so it says in Martha's book eventually the godly response becomes the automatic response as we work at it the Holy Spirit supernaturally enables us This process is described in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 and is called the biblical process of change. So now Martha has a chart where she has put off with several scriptures that are listed underneath of it. And she also has put on with, again, several scriptures that are listed underneath of this chart as well. So as we put off, we are called to put off the old self. And we are to put on the new self. Seems simple enough. Continues on. Lay aside falsehood. This is Ephesians 4, 25. We're to put off falsehood. And we are to put on speaking truth, each one of you with his neighbor. I think about when people ask you a question or they are making a statement about something. How often do you tell the person just what they want to hear? It's not the truth, but you're afraid that you may hurt them with the truth. And so you lie. And at the same time, someone is telling you something, especially if it's something that as a Christian, they're believing, they're learning about God as they read his word. If it's not biblical, you are doing that person no good if you do not in love speak the truth to that person. And There are several examples that I could use, but specifically, I'm going to use an example with a friend of mine and myself. And this was several years ago, but I was speaking something that I believe to be true about God. And I'm not exactly sure where I'd heard it, but I was referencing scripture, but I was actually misquoting scripture. And my friend got kind of quiet and didn't really think much of it. We continued to talk in the conversation, but then later on she came back to it and I could tell that she was sincere and that she wanted to make sure that where I was 
misunderstanding God's character that she made clear that my understanding was right. She helped me to put on the new self by speaking truth with me. And so I want to encourage you to be willing to allow other Christians to speak this truth into your life. Give them the okay to do this. If you are growing in your understanding of God, we should never be in isolation as we read God as we read God's word. We should be involved in our church with attending a Sunday service. Our church, I talk about this a lot, but we break off into weekday life groups where we are encouraged to discuss the Sunday sermon or to participate in a Bible study where we are engaging in God's word together. Give these people the okay to present truth to you. And may you be humble enough to listen and accept their correction if it's needed. And hopefully they'll give you the okay to do that as well so that you can speak truth to them just as they will with you. So we are to put off, it says, let him who steals, steal no longer. We are to put on, let him labor that he may share with those in need. We are to put off all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Let it be put away from you. And we are to put on being kind and tenderhearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Martha goes on to say that over sin begins in your heart with what you desire, what you want in part determines how you talk to yourself. A person may be somewhat successful at modifying outward behavior, but the only real way to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ is to think according to his word. Romans 12:2. This is the renewing of your mind. The following are examples of how a wife might think wrong sinful thoughts contrasted with her putting on right godly thoughts. So again, we have a chart where it lists wrong sinful thoughts in comparison to right godly thoughts. I'm just going to read through these. So number one, wrong thought, I hate him. Right godly thought, I don't feel love for him right now, but I choose to love him by responding in a kind way. Ladies, before I was a Christian, I had a great hatred toward my husband, which it is such an odd thing to even think about because of who I am now in Christ and how God has given me a desire to love my husband. I praise him every day for his grace and his mercy and for the faith that he's given me to walk forward. But I wanted to rule over my husband, as it says in Genesis 3. Um, how this was so true in my life and how often I find myself still wanting to rule over him. But this is not the way that God has designed for us women to live as his children. He has called us to submit ourselves to our husbands and he's called husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so if you're having hateful thoughts about your husband, you need to turn those thoughts into realizing that your husband is not your savior. He is far from being perfect. He is a sinner who falls short of the glory of God, just as you do. 
And although he may not struggle with the same sins that you do, he has his own sins that he's walking through. Whether he is a believer in Christ or whether he is an unbeliever who is in need of Jesus. We are to love him even when we don't feel like we want to love him. We need to choose to love him by responding in a kind way. The second wrong sinful thought is there is no hope for this marriage. And the right godly thought would be if he repents, there is nothing that I cannot forgive and that we cannot work through. Now I want to take a moment to pause because in preparing to do this study on Martha's book, I had read several reviews. I follow a couple different um, groups on Facebook where certain Christian books are promoted or certain Christian books are discouraged. And I would say that seeing that I am a complementarian, meaning that I hold the view that God has designed specific gender roles for the specific genders that he's created, that being male and female, there are certain roles that a woman should not be stepping into because that's how God has designed it to be, and vice versa, certain roles that men really should not be doing in how God's designed them. And so most of the women that have a complementarian view, they fall on the side of the fact that Martha's book is a wonderful study for women to utilize. But all women want you to be aware that when reading Martha's book, in no way is she telling women who are in a physically abusive or a sexually abusive relationship to not seek help, whether that be with your local authorities, whether that be seeking out counseling or biblical counsel from your church elders, pastors. So whenever we talk about submitting to our husbands, let me be clear that in no way is Martha nor am I encouraging you to remain at this present time in a relationship where you are being physically or sexually abused by your husband. I just wanted to make sure that I really threw that out there because in reading the reviews, again, most women that I follow on these groups that hold a complementarian view, they would recommend this book, but they always say to aid with caution because of the fact that any marriage book could be an opportunity for the unbelieving world or the egalitarians, so to speak, that believe that all women should be able to hold specific roles as men, that we are encouraging women to remain in abusive relationships. So as we continue on, we talk about, it says here, if he repents, there is nothing that I cannot forgive and that we cannot work through. And now without mentioning any names, I just want to talk for a minute about a wonderful Christian woman that I know. She has a remarkable testimony of coming to the Lord and how God would spare her life through she was going to commit suicide and God would intervene and it is beautiful. And she's walking through some difficulties with her marriage and just knowing how our culture is today, most women 
would encourage this woman, as I know that they have, if they are not Christians, to leave her husband, divorce him, and perhaps that will be what happens with this marriage, but right now she is fighting for her marriage. She is fighting for her children to have their mother and father in the same home. She is in prayer intentionally for her husband to repent and to turn away from his sinful acts. And again, I don't know the full details with this. I don't know if this man is truly a Christian or not. But I do know that this woman is doing just that. She is putting off the sinful thought that there is no hope for this marriage. And she is clinging to God's truth that there is nothing that I cannot forgive that we cannot work through. And again, this woman is not in a physically abusive relationship. Um, She's not being sexually abused. And so this woman is choosing to fight for her marriage. And I'm very encouraged by her and to watch her move forward. And I pray that God would bless their marriage and that they would have a great testimony to give the church one day. Number three, I can't be what God wants me to be because my husband is not a righteous man. Okay, again, this is a wrong thought. Your husband is not Jesus. Your husband is not going to be perfect. A right thought would be, he may be a complete failure before God, but I do not have to be. I can be pleasing to God whether he is or not. Again, I think this has a lot to do with the fact that if your husband is an unbeliever, perhaps you have come to know the Lord and you have laid down your old life and you have been made new through the blood of Christ. Your husband may not be a believer. He may never become a believer. You may be praying for him for years and it just may not be um, what ends up taking place. But in the meantime, women, you have the ability to honor the Lord by honoring your husband. And I love the scripture where it says that your husband's may be won over without a word. This means that you don't have to preach at your husband. You don't have to throw a Bible at him. You don't even have to force him to go to church with you or with the children. Now, if your husband is an unbeliever and he tells you that you're not allowed to go to church, this is not biblical. That would be your husband asking you to sin and you would have to refuse to submit to your husband in this instance. But I've read several stories about women who have been married to unbelievers and how they were able to still honor their husbands. And one thing that came to mind is that women, if you are seeking ways to disciple your children, despite your husband wanting to teach them God's word and to pray with your children, can I encourage you to do this when your husband is not home? Can I encourage you to catch the kids when they get off the school bus and to sit down with them, have a moment of devotion, a time of teaching and a time of prayer with your kids. And then if your husband's open to it later on in the evening, I encourage you always to pray over your dinner table. I don't think that this is a must that you have to do, but I think this is an opportunity that generally people are gathered together for the same common purpose that you all need to eat and so it is an opportunity for you to pray as a family and if your husband's open to it um, 
asking if you can pray over your family and the dinner. Do not put pressure on your husband to pray. If he does not want to pray, do not be forcing him to do something that he obviously does not want to do. When it says that your husbands will be won over without a word, this can be done through you prayerfully, quietly going to the Lord, asking him to open the eyes of your husband. But you can still love your husband. You can still be who God wants you to be despite the fact that your husband is saved or not saved or is living a righteous life if he is in Christ or not. Number four, a wrong sinful thought. I can't take the pressure anymore. Ah, can't take the pressure. A right godly thought is I can take the pressure since there is no temptation but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I am able to bear. I was reading a book that was talking about a woman who was married to an unbeliever and in the evenings her husband would watch somewhat provocative shows, shows that she personally would not allow the children to watch. But her husband enjoyed sitting down in the living room and having that time in the evening to watch these shows. And she would bicker back and forth with her husband. And it was just not a good situation because eventually, in due time, obviously this was not the only reason that caused her husband to leave. She was constantly bickering at him that he wasn't being involved in the church and he wasn't... um, teaching the children scripture and he wasn't wanting to pray and of course he wasn't wanting to do these things because he is not a believer but this man would eventually leave his wife and then the children are going to be going back and forth between the mom's home and the dad's home and that woman would see that her children will now be under her husband's instruction for several days a month where she has no idea what is being taught, what is being watched. And so women, if I can encourage you in any way, if this is your current situation, your husband's watching provocative shows that you do not think are appropriate for your kids, um, God's grace is sufficient for whatever you're walking through. And so I want to encourage you that this is not too much for God to handle. To pause this for just a moment, I had a random vehicle pull up to my house. I had forgotten that I had sold some things on the online. I don't normally do that. I normally just donate most of the things that we have that we're going to give away. But I had some Christmas gifts that my daughter had received last year that are really just too young for her that she wanted to sell. And so brand new stuff. We had a couple boxes of Legos, and a lady came and picked them up. Her and her husband support a ministry called Bible, sorry, Project Bible Runners. You can look them up on Facebook. They also have a website called projectbiblerunners.com, and they will collect books and then deliver them to different places. So their last post that they have here, it says most of the brethren who received the Bibles were mostly pastors and ministers. They represented 12 local churches in this area. They were very glad and shared a desire to meet again for further study. Most of these ministers and teachers were without the word. We thank God for the unity 
that God is doing through the Bible distributions. This was from Daniel, Bible runner in Uganda. So just really cool. This family is really awesome. I just know them through Facebook. Um, a couple years ago, we were looking into a milk cow, and I was introduced to them because they had a cow that they were wanting to sell. And so it's funny how God brings people together. And I was just encouraged by her this morning. She had her worship music going in their gigantic van. And um, as she was pulling away, I couldn't help but just lift my hands up. And I was praising the Lord as she was pulling out for what God is doing. So really awesome. Okay, continuing on with the wrong sinful thoughts versus the right godly thoughts. The fifth one says, I wish I could be with my with my friend's husband. He is so kind to her. Wrong thought. <laughs> um, a right godly thought would be, thank you, Lord, for my husband. What can I do for him to show him that he is special to me? I think this goes along with what we discussed earlier from the passage in Galatians where it says that um, jealousy and strife that live within us, these should not be attributes of us as Christians. Again, this doesn't mean that we're not going to never have jealous thoughts. We're never going to be envious of other people. But if you are finding yourself to be envious of your friend because his, her, sorry, her husband is just so wonderful and whatever, godly or handsome or financially more secure than your husband, I don't know, whatever it may be, you need to take the time to thank the Lord for your husband and ask the Lord, how can you be kind to him today? How can you give him a blessing? Number six, I don't dare tell him what I am thinking. If I do, he will think badly of me. This is a wrong thought. I don't dare tell him what I'm thinking. If I do, he will think badly of me. We have a couple in our life. They're very good friends of us. And his wife, before she became a Christian, was very dominating over her husband. She will openly tell you this. And it's something that she's really had to work through. And her husband had kind of taken the back seat, so to speak, when it came to making any of the decisions because he was scared of her and he didn't want to make her mad. And so I think about this from a man's perspective, his perspective, where he wouldn't dare tell her what he was thinking because he didn't want to make her mad. That was actually a wrong, sinful thought. And a right thought would be, can I learn to speak the truth in love? God will give me the grace to respond to his reaction whenever it is. So when I think about how our friends are growing in the knowledge of the Lord, and how he is stepping into his position of being the leader of their family, he is able, because the two of them together are openly having conversations, he's able to discuss his desires and his concerns with her because she is taking a breath and she is realizing that God is wanting to work within her and within their marriage. And so... If you find yourself in a marriage where you just don't ever want to say anything to your husband because he's going to get mad at you, well, if you're a believer in Christ, let's reevaluate your motives and let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask the Lord to give us opportunities to speak the truth in love and the grace to respond whenever he tells us something that we maybe don't want to hear. So, for example, this might be a little bit 
too much information, but I'm going to share it anyways. <laughs> Sometimes I share things I think, oh goodness, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but I pray that the Lord will use it. As I had mentioned earlier, my husband and I, we are expecting our fifth child. This is an exciting, exciting thing to tell people. But several months ago, my husband was contemplating moving forward with a vasectomy. The day before he was going to go and have the procedure, I was very sorrowful. And I came to him and I just said, I love you so much. And I know this is something that you've been thinking about for a long time. He'd already had one canceled vasectomy. And he just was really sure that he didn't want to have any more children. We faced some health problems with our youngest son. And the thought of having another child and potentially walking through some of the same things was just kind of scary for both of us and after he had been in the hospital the last time we shook on it that we would be done having children and after we came home I said I'm sorry I did that I'm not so sure that that was the right thing I, I I'm not sure that I can say that I want to be done having children well he said Abby I'm going to move forward with this this is what I believe we need to do and so the day before he was going to go and have this done that evening we sat down and I just said that I love you and I respect you and this, this decision, but I just, I'm not sure that this is what we are supposed to do right now in our life. And he really listened and I appreciate him so much for that. But what followed was, he said, I want you to know that um, I'm concerned that sometimes you're not taking care of the things in the house in the way that I think would bless our family the most, that you could be kind of scatterbrained and you let things slip through the cracks. And if we would ever potentially have another child, I want you to get serious about making sure that you're on top of these things because it brings stress to me in my life. And, and, um, I love you, but it's hard for me to say these things to you. And it was hard for me to hear those things at first, but really it was nothing that I didn't already know. I do have a scattered brain personality at times, and I really have to ask the Lord to help me to be, um, to be more organized and to be thoughtful to plan things in advance because I'm definitely more of a spontaneous person. And so I respected my husband. I told him that this is something that I would definitely ask the Lord to help me with, and I appreciated that he was willing to not move forward with this vasectomy regardless of whether we would have more children. Well, fast forward a few months later, we were not expecting it, but we found ourselves looking at a positive pregnancy test. And my husband said, do you remember that conversation we had? I'm serious about this. And so it's something that I really respect him and I want to honor him. And I've really had to look at our finances and see how I can be more prepared to look ahead at our schedule so that I know what things are happening so that I'm not letting things slip through the crack like I have in the past. And so I encourage you to give your husband the okay to openly um, give you loving criticism and see how your marriage will be blessed. Number seven says, I wish he would leave me alone. That's a wrong thought. The right thought is thank you, Lord, for my husband who does want to be with me. Number eight, if he loved me, he would be romantic. Um, that's a wrong thought. A right godly thought is love does not seek its own way. What can I do to show love to him? Again, if you've watched too many 
Hallmark movies, you need to realize that although your relationship may have started out with lovey-dovey feelings and um, an emotional attraction, I'm not saying that you should not continue to have feelings of love for your spouse or that you should not continue to be emotionally and physically attracted to him. Um, but that's not all actually, that's such a small part of marriage. And so if you think that love means that your husband needs to romanticize everything in your day-to-day lives, that he should be doing things to serve you, I encourage you to remove those thoughts and to seek to love him by doing good to him. We are to show love to others, even when we are not receiving that in return. Martha finishes this chapter with saying, changing sinful thoughts begins with recognizing thoughts that are selfish or unloving, vengeful or bitter, or in any way unbiblical. After realizing that your thought is wrong, confess it to God, agreeing with God that the thought was sinful. However, since repentance means to change your mind, the repentance process is not complete until you have replaced it with a godly, righteous thought. Then you will have put off a self-honoring thought and will have put on a God-honoring thought. It is a process that takes work. How hard you work at putting on the right thoughts and actions will directly affect how much, like the Lord Jesus Christ, you become in this life. If you work at it, you will be training yourself for the purpose of godliness. So as we finish up today, I have a few questions that I would like for you to all chew on this week. And the first question is, what does it mean to be justified by God? Again, what does it mean to be justified by God? This is something that we discussed prior as we were talking about how we need to have an understanding of God's word. There's going to be certain words that come up that describe processes that take place, whether it's a one-time process or it is a continuous process until we get to be with the Lord. But I want you to think about what does it truly mean to be justified by God? The other question I want to leave you with for this week is what does the Greek word for discipline mean? Again, we talked about this. The Greek word means gymnasio. So in your own words, explain what the word gymnasio or discipline means and I will give you a key passage to look at. Again, for reference, look at 1 Timothy 4.7. This is where we see the word discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So again, what does the word gymnazo, discipline, in your own words mean? for joining me today as we went through lesson three of Martha Peace's book, The Excellent Wife. I pray that you are all walking away with a greater understanding of who you are as a new creation in Christ Jesus and who God intends for you to be as an individual created in his image, as a female created with a unique role and purpose. And may you seek to live out God's word in your everyday lives. As you go, May you be encouraged to make disciples and see others come to know the Lord in a personal way. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon. Have a great week.